just a brief word further on manifest destiny, Tucson gives instances of a like faith among the Russians, for example. And you can find this humanistic version among a number of peoples. But, as he points out, first of all, these humanistic versions, as the Russian, see the holy group as the people or the race. And second, they are the good ones and the enemy is the evil, therefore maintain the faith against the enemy, defend, not conquer. A very static position. Then third, and most basic, these humanistic versions hold not that things are to be made new as in biblical faith. Behold, I make all things new. But the past is accepted in principle as the epitome of the good. Let us go back to our pure Russian heritage or to our Anglo-Saxon traditions or to our pure Gallic or French inheritance and so on. So the appeal is to a racial purity in the past rather than to looking ahead to make all things new. Now, our subject shall be the coming of the Civil War. The coming of the Civil War. The first thing we must say about that event is that it was not an inevitable war. For a long time, the radical historians have tried to foist upon Americans the notion that it was an irrepressible conflict. There was no escaping it. One of the reasons why some of the great presidents before the Civil War are still held in contempt and are not regarded as very good presidents is because they refuse to believe that it was an inevitable conflict. In other words, because they tried to avert the conflict, it is held that ipso facto they were incompetence, bumblers, bunglers, and the like. Thus, a whole series of very able men, Tyler, Polk, Fillmore, Pierce, and Buchanan are consistently treated with disrespect in the textbooks. Again, a whole school of historians are insistent upon declaring that the only way that slavery could have been eliminated was exactly the way it was done, by war, by the total conflict that ensued in the Civil War. There are still writers who are bent on showing how slavery was profitable. However, there are so many factors they overlook in their computations that 
their data is questionable. Pierce, as president, in one of his messages, warned the country against the belief that slavery was going to continue indefinitely. Pierce was accused of being pro-Southern, although he came from New Hampshire. But Pierce's point of view was, as a man who believed in free enterprise, that economically it was impossible for slavery to continue indefinitely. It could not compete with free enterprise. Slave labor was unprofitable. Therefore, he felt, leave the matter alone. It eventually will destroy itself. It will become unable to compete with the free market worker. Now, as against some who held that slavery would continue indefinitely, there are other scholars who say that by 1870, slavery would have started to disappear in the South. One of their reasons for this is that some of the northern mill owners were beginning to work out plans with prominent southerners to establish factories, textile mills, in the south, so that instead of having to ship the cotton to the north and then the finished goods back, it could be manufactured in the south. The idea was that very ordinary, everyday textiles would be manufactured there and the superior type of cloth manufactured in the north. Now, one of the consequences of the use of the Negro in the factory would have been their very progressive emancipation because there would have had to be a very real incentive to get them work and this would have been paid. The average slave was a poor worker it was a joke, even among Southerners, how little work the slave did. The slave had cradle-to-grave security. The result was getting much work out of the slave was a problem. He took life easily. One of the most common ideas among the slaves kind of a standard joke was putting on old massa that is uh, taking advantage of him kidding him and uh, in one way or another fooling him slaves in the south would have money why for the simple reason that it was a way of bribing them to work so that slaves were regularly going to town to buy liquor for themselves, to buy tobacco, to buy clothing a little fancier than they were given, simply because one way of getting a slave to work was by means of the incentive of money. So there was a steady movement towards paying them, which in some cases enabled ambitious slaves to buy their own freedom when they saved their money. Moreover, 
only one out of 17 Southerners was a slave owner. The other 16 did not like the slave owners or the slaves. They resented the prestige and the position that was acquired by the slave owner. And so he very often tempted to be, whether honestly or out of envy or jealousy, anti-slavery. South Carolina, for a variety of reasons, was the one state that was emphatically pro-slavery. The anti-slavery sentiment became extremely strong during the Civil War in the South. Why? Well, supposing you were one of these Southerners who did not have slaves. The war began. You might have been for independence from the Union up until that point, but when the war began and you were drafted, you thought twice about uh, the whole issue. And for you to be going off to war, possibly to die, while the slaves sat around on the front porch would really infuriate you. And the sentiment of bitterness in the Confederate soldiers about the fact that they were fighting and dying and the slaves were back there doing nothing is something that today is not often talked about. You see, what has happened is that so many Southerners after the war, because of Reconstruction, began to glamorize their cause when they had been hostile to it throughout the war. Jefferson Davis was very unpopular once the war began because it was one thing to say I want freedom from Washington, another thing to be told that you had to obey orders from your own president. You had to be drafted by him. So they were bitterly hostile through the war to much that Jeff Davis represented. It was only when the Union imprisoned Jeff Davis after the war that he became a hero to the South. Now, this doesn't mean that Davis was not a good man before, during, and after he was. He was a very superior man. But the plain fact is, through the war years, he was disliked. He represented the war. He represented the draft. Now, on top of that, the war was foolishness compounded on the part of the South. A disaster. Just look at some of the figures. 35 million Americans. 26 million in the North. Now that immediately gives you a staggering situation. That means nine million in the South. But that's not all. Of this nine million, five million were free, four million slaves. Well, now, 
Any realistic look at that picture gives you a sad prospect, doesn't it? 26 million against 9 million. But you can't say 9 million. It's 26 million against 5 million. The situation was hopeless. Utterly hopeless. And this is why you have to recognize that it was an emotional, unreasonable stampeding which for which South Carolina has to take the blame that led them into it. Now, many of the politicians, including Jeff Davis, were talking about this. After all, it was popular with the people. But Jeff Davis himself, not too long before that, had been in Boston sitting down with a cotton wig as a good friend, talking about plans for the development of the South economically. But once the rabble-rousing element, especially in South Carolina, got people whipped up and started secession, it was pushed through in one state after another. And once the South Carolinans fired on Fort Sumter, there was no turning back, no matter how badly people felt. Alexander Stevens, who was vice president of the Confederacy, was virtually a traitor to the South during the war because he recognized there was so much disaster ahead and was trying one way or another to prevent the ugly course of events. Recognizing also that in the name of the, uh, fighting the war, the South was surrendering its own liberties. Now, in terms of the very brilliant generalship which the South commanded, it did not become the total disaster it could have been. The Union dead were 360,000 in the war. 360,000. The South, 358,000. But, when you realize that the South had five million men that were white, and divide that in two, and you have two and a half million, let us say, who are men. And of that two and a half million, you'd have to say two-thirds were little children, little boys, and old men. So out of that two and a half million, maybe a million and a half, in fact the estimates say, I don't know why, that of military age there were one million sixty-five thousand. Why the discrepancy, I don't know, you would think it would be higher. But actually, according to the military statistics, there were only a million sixty-five thousand men who could possibly bear arms in the South. So, when you take three hundred and fifty-eight thousand of them as dead before the war, 
you begin to realize what a disaster the war was to the South. Now, Southerners talk rightly about the horror of Reconstruction and the horror of the invading army and the destruction they wrought and Sherman marched and burned and looted and destroyed right and left. But those things can be replaced, you see. But what could you do with one-third of your men of military age dead? That's a disaster beyond parallel. Consider what would happen if one-third of the men of military age in Virginia or the entire East were suddenly to disappear in the next four years. And you have some idea of the disaster. Now, when Southerners thus talk about the evils of Reconstruction and the horrors of the march of Sherman's army, they're talking about very real things, and they're not exaggerating, but they're forgetting the worst thing of all. The very worst. It was a disaster of staggering dimensions. And it was all... unnecessary and wrong. Let's examine some of the background of the events that led to the war. First of all, in 1820-21, to 21, one of the important pieces of legislation was the Missouri Compromise. Some years earlier, the Louisiana Purchase had added a sizable territory to the United States. And in the Missouri Compromise, it was decided to maintain a political balance between the North and the South. To allow, as the states came in, one to be slave and one to be free. So that in each successive state or territory, as it came in, there was to be a balance. The Constitution, as it adopt, was adopted, was to permit slavery in one, not require it, of course, that was never the fact, but you could own slaves in this one new state, and in the other you could not. The Missouri Compromise, therefore, worked out a political balance. However, this applied to the Louisiana Purchase. With the Mexican War, a tremendous amount of new territory was added to the United States. What was to be done with this? Unfortunately, one congressman, Wilmot, in the Wilmot Proviso of 1846, moved that there be no more slavery in territories acquired from Mexico. This measure had the whole country up in arms, as it were, ready to fight the slavery issue all over again, which had ostensibly been settled by the Missouri Compromise. The Wilmot Proviso passed in the House but failed in the Senate. And as a result, the old Henry 
play ably seconded by the very old Daniel Webster came up with a compromise of 1850. The compromise was to continue the earlier compromise in the new territories. First, it provided that California was to come in as a free state. Second, the slave trade, but not slavery itself, was abolished in Washington, D.C. This had been a real problem in that northern congressmen who were anti-slavery would get very much worked up when they would come to Washington, D.C. and find the slave market operating. It would infuriate them, and so it was, they felt, a wise measure to abolish the slave market and the slave trade in London. Although slavery could exist, that is, Southerners could come here and settle or come to Congress with their slaves, and there was no problem. Third, a stronger, putative slave law was passed as a part of the Compromise of 1850. Fourth, the Compromise of 1850 provided that the public debt of Texas before 1845 was to be taken over by the United States and Texas in return was to relinquish part of New Mexico which Texas was claiming. Then the fifth, it was provided, you see now California had come in free and Texas a slave, that New Mexico and Utah, then territories, would be free to choose a pro or an anti-slavery position at such time as they became states. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief when Daniel Webster first proposed to second this and came out in favor of Henry Clay's Compromise of 1850. You recall the immediate reaction of Massachusetts and much of New England was one of horror Daniel Webster was denounced. He was described as Ichabod, the glorious departed. But in just a few days after this tremendous outburst of wrath, outburst of wrath and horror, they began to realize that, yes, here was a workable answer to prevent the conflict that otherwise would ensue. And as a result, the Compromise of 1850 was passed. The whole nation breathed a sigh of relief. There were very good communications between North and South, or more particularly between New England and the South. And it seemed as though further troubles were definitely avoided. We now had virtually all the territory we were likely to acquire. A compromise had been reached, and those who were anti-slavery could hope that little by little, slavery would become an impossible institution and would disappear. Then, on January the 4th, 1854, the peace was shattered 
and the whole nation in an uproar. Northerners who had up until this time been hostile to the abolitionists came out fighting and were ready to shake hands with abolitionists they had refused to talk to before. Why? One man, a senator, introduced a bill which immediately brought everything into conflict. Stephen A. Douglas, called the Little Giant, introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Bill. The Kansas-Nebraska Bill. Now, Douglas held, when he did this, that the Compromise of 1850 had wiped out the Missouri Compromise so that the necessity of having a balance between the North and the South no longer existed. Now, the minute he brought this out into the open, of course, it became a matter of debate. It had been assumed that the Compromise of 1850 and the Missouri Compromise were both a part of the law of the land and that there was no necessity for conflict. And now here was a senator who was assumed to be pro-Southern who was trying to straddle the fence on things, reopening the whole issue. He did it in the name of popular sovereignty, an issue that was becoming more and more popular in some areas. And so, Douglas said, popular sovereignty must prevail. As Kansas and Nebraska come in as new states, they must decide in terms of their own voting whether they're going to be free or slaves. And we cannot settle it here because the old compromise requiring one to be free and one to be slave is no longer valid. Now, unfortunately, the Kansas-Nebraska bill passed in that, well, Kansas and Nebraska were being brought in as territories and some provision had to be made for their future. And Douglas's popular sovereignty idea prevailed. Now, the immediate result was what is called the bleeding Kansas aspect of America. Kansas, a territory, began to look forward to statehood. Immediately, it became the focus of northern and southern intention. What happened was that a very bloody history ensued. Southerners moved in from Missouri to settle the area and to make sure it would be post-slavery. At the same time, in New England, uh, an immigration society was formed to rush people into Kansas who would be anti-slavery to make it an anti-slavery state. Very quickly, then, these two groups were in conflict. And it led to the massacre of some of these people who had emigrated there from New England as outsiders who were trying to tip the balances 
You had people from Missouri coming in to massacre them. And immediately there was retaliation. The guilt is clearly on both sides very, very heavily. In fact, one of the hate killers became very famous subsequently in American history. Does anyone know his name? John Brown. John Brown was financed together with his sons to act as a paid killer who ruthlessly went from one area to another to massacre the pro-slavery families. The men would be dragged out of their cabins and ruthlessly shot down. Both sides were doing it. It was an ugly, vicious situation. Both sides, unable to vote or act together, began to create their own governments, to vote in their own constitutions. The net outcome, however, was that finally instead of becoming a state Kansas stayed a territory and as a territory the free soil man being numerically stronger gained control and so it was emphatically a free state but trouble had been And John Brown now, as a paid killer, a fanatical anti-slavery man, who claimed to be a Christian of sorts, but in reality really a semi-insane fanatic, a vicious killer, was hired by a group of Unitarian abolitionists, very wealthy men, who formed a secret society for this purpose and called themselves the Secret Six. The Secret Six was made up of these six wealthy Unitarians who could finance what was going on. There was a second Secret Six of thinkers, men like Emerson, These men then felt the best way to bring this issue into the open again is to force a war, and in particular to strike in the South and incite the slaves to warfare so that we can create civil warfare in the South. John Brown was heavily financed for this purpose by these people. And the result was the raid on Harper's Ferry. Well, it was a total failure in that the Southern Negro had no desire for a revolution or a revolt. On the other hand, the one thing that the Southerner feared almost psychotically was a slave revolt. There had been some time earlier, much earlier, one or two slave revolts, notably Nat Turner's revolt. And as a result, there was a lingering fear of what could happen 
if the slaves turned against them. Part of the fear was a statistical fear. After all, if you're five million free men with four million slaves, you know that uh, if those slaves should get ideas, why, it could be very serious. This kind of thing, of course, has been a fear in every slave culture throughout history. One of the things, for example, in ancient Greece, Athens, that was uh, a matter of state policy was that because Athens was overwhelmingly made up of slaves, you could not dress your slaves in any distinctive clothing. They had to be dressed like you. Now, can you guess the reason for such a regulation? Right. You see, the slaves in Greece were of the same race and color, complexion as anybody else. And certainly, if a slave were dressed exactly like everybody else, when the slave was on the streets, he didn't want to be known as a slave, so he'd walk along if he went shopping for his master or mistress, just like anybody else. So, the slaves had no idea how many slaves there were. If they had ever known how vastly they outnumbered the free, at any time the slaves could have taken over Athens. Now, this kind of fear of slavery, you, as I said earlier, will find in every culture where there has been the institution of slavery. And so there were extreme fears in the South with regard to slave revolts. It has been popular in recent years on the part of liberals, and especially civil rights people, and increasingly with Negroes, to portray the possibility of slave revolts as a very real one. After all, if you are a black, you don't want to think that your people were not freedom fighters, ready to get up there and charge and create a revolution at the drop of a hat. So the kind of picture you're going to try to see as you look back at the South is one in which your people were freedom fighters and it was only because there was practically a bayonet and they're behind all the time that you didn't have the South in flames. The reality is that in spite of the fears of the Southerners, the possibility of a slave revolt was very, very slim. Even in the period of Reconstruction, when you had Union forces and carpetbaggers trying to use the Negro in order to take advantage of the South and to rule the South, it by and large failed. And while in a few instances you had Negroes exercising power to a limited degree, by and large, during the period of Reconstruction, although the fact of Negro senators in the state senates and Negro legislators and governors loomed large in the mind of the white southerner. They were figureheads. 
They were ordered around by whites who used them to accomplish whatever they wanted. The spirit of revolt was not there. But John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry frightened the South. It sent shockwaves everywhere. It was October 19, 1859. Moreover, the thing that most frightened them was that John Brown was a poor man with no money, so poor you couldn't even call him bankrupt because he didn't have enough assets to go bankrupt and nobody would ever give him enough so that he could go into debt. He was a ne'er-do-well. And yet he was extremely well supplied. Now, obviously, there was a plot. That was the most obvious thing. A plot to create a slave revolt. The South was right at that point. The plot, however, was a very small one and a foolish one. The Secret Six with a handful of others, John Brown and a small handful. It was a harebrained scheme it accomplished nothing but the execution of Brown and those involved in the plot with him, that is, on the acting end. Some of the wealthy members of the Secret Six immediately took fright, fearful that Brown would talk and left the country. However, then as now, people are ready to imagine conspiracies and where there are real conspiracies simply because their fears magnify them, they blow them up into a fantastically large thing. And so the belief in the South was that virtually every foreigner was involved in a conspiracy to have their slaves rise up during the night and to creep into their bedrooms and slit their throats and rape their women and there was a tremendous amount of hysteria created by John Brown. So that, while Secret Six and John Brown made a very absurd attempt, they were impractical men. It was a foolish, hair-brained scheme. Surprisingly, it did succeed because there was an equally hair-brained reaction in the South the fright, the terror that it created, made them ready when Lincoln was elected. Not too many days after to feel that this is the end. We're going to face slave revolution. We're going to face every kind of horror. Secession, this is the answer. And South Carolina led the way in secession, and then afterwards led the way in firing the shot on Fort Sumter. The irony of it was, too, at the same time, the Democratic Party split two ways between Breckenridge and Douglas, 
some of the cotton Whigs of the North who wanted peace put a Southern candidate in the running that fell of Virginia to try to have a peace candidate. So the vote was divided even further. Although Lincoln gained only 40% of the votes, the popular votes, he gained an overwhelming majority of electoral votes because he carried one state after another in that the vote was split four ways. Lincoln had 180 electoral votes, Reckonridge 72, Bell 39, and Douglas only 12. And so the war began. There was only one winner. In a sense, it was John Brown, the Secret Six, the Hawkins. It was, in Congress, the work of two of the most contemptible characters the Senate and the House had yet seen in Washington. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts and Thaddeus Stevens in the House of Pennsylvania. They were the real winners. They were the ones who foisted their ideas which were essentially totalitarian and socialist upon the Union. They were the ones who continually troubled the North and the South and Lincoln. Sumner was a Unitarian to the core who had a hatred of God and of Christianity, who had been a champion of Horace Mann and the state-controlled public school system. Thaddeus Stevens was a club-footed man whose body was nowhere near as deformed as his mind was, an exceedingly brilliant man. In terms of intelligence, a very superior man, but a man contorted and twisted by hatred, a statist to the core in most areas. His mistress was a colored woman, a devout Catholic, he himself a rampant atheist who hated Christianity. These men governed. There's one amusing story to lighten a very grim story about Thaddeus Stevens. When Lincoln made an appointment to the cabinet, I believe it was Cameron, Thaddeus Stevens stormed in to protest. He thought he should have the right to control Lincoln and tried and failed. And he expressed his utter hatred and contempt of Cameron, whom to a degree Lincoln was obligated in terms of the deal that put him into the presidency to make a cabinet official. And Thaddeus Stevens said, that man Cameron is so dishonest he would steal everything except a hot stove. And uh, somebody who overheard it reported it to Cameron, who went to Thaddeus Stevens and protested vehemently about it. So uh, 
Stevens came right back to uh, Lincoln and he said, I was wrong about Cameron. He would steal a hot stove. Are there any questions at this point about anything we have covered in this hour? Yes. Yes, the electoral votes, Lincoln 180, Breckenridge 72, Bell 39, Douglas 12. What? Douglas was what? I can't hear you. Yes, Douglas was a Democrat. Well, no, Breckenridge and Douglas were Democrats, and Bell was of the Union Party, uh, also essentially a Democrat, put up by the Cotton Whigs to try to present a peace program. He was a Virginian. Breckenridge was a Southerner. Douglas was from Illinois, but essentially a Southerner in his outlook. I believe he was from Pennsylvania, if my recollection serves me correctly. It's sad that today uh, Douglas is being rehabilitated and uh, he has a fearful guilt to blame. He was a very able man. But uh, there's no question that uh, he bears a fearful responsibility for the war in terms of his Kansas-Nebraska bill. It was a very ill-advised one. But Douglas was ambitious for the presidency, and he was ready to get into the public limelight. In a sense, though, he eliminated himself from it, not from the limelight, but from a very serious candidacy as president. He also helped make another president, Lincoln, in that it was through the Lincoln-Douglas debates that Lincoln gained eminence. Any other questions? Well, if not, our study is concluded for the morning and we will return this evening.